Welcome to Question Period. I'm Evan Solomon. Today on the program, gun freeze. Other than using firearms for sport shooting and hunting, there is no reason anyone in Canada should need guns in their everyday lives. Will the federal government's freeze on handguns do anything to stop gun violence in the country? Why not a full ban? Should more be done to prevent gun smuggling across the border? We'll speak to the Public Safety Minister, Marco Mendicino, and get a response from the conservative public safety critic, Raquel Dancho. Then, the big blue wave. We have changed what it means to be a progressive conservative in Ontario. How did Doug Ford roll to such a crushing second majority? And after the NDP and the Liberal leaders both stepped aside, how did those parties recover from the massive loss? Are the federal parties learning lessons from the Ontario election? Doug Ford's campaign manager, Corey Tonight, joins us on the Scrum. All that plus drug laws. For too many years, the ideological opposition to harm reduction has cost lives. Will decriminalizing small possession of drugs like fentanyl and cocaine in British Columbia really curb the opioid crisis? Why did the feds grant the legal exemption? And should it be national? BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Sheila Malcolmson, joins us. All that, plus the Queen's 70th Jubilee. This is Question Period. Let's go get some answers. A handgun freeze. That is the centerpiece of the controversial new firearms legislation from the Trudeau government. But is it actually on target to stop handgun crime? Registered handguns in Canada increased by 71% between 2010 and 2020, reaching about 1.1 million according to the federal government. So, they are now putting a national freeze on importing, buying and selling and transferring handguns. There's a removal of gun licenses from people who commit domestic violence or criminal harassment. And a new red flag law to allow courts to require people considered a danger to give up their firearms to police. Now the new bill, of course, follows that horrific school massacre in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 children and two teachers were gunned down. Still, critics say the Liberals are missing the mark on the real problem. Check this out. It's extremely problematic because it is uh, absolutely appears to be going after uh, those those that own firearms but do so legally and are following all of the rules and regulations that are in place. So this is, you know, nothing more than really virtue signaling by the, the federal government. So will the new legislation actually prevent guns from being smuggled across the U.S. border? And why did the federal government stop short of a national handgun ban that some municipalities are pushing for? Let's find out. Joining me now, the Public Safety Minister, Marco Mendicino. Minister, good to have you back on the program. Thanks. Why bring in a national freeze on handguns? Because it still leaves a million handguns. Plus, your government does support municipalities and provinces with a ban. So if, if it's so effective, why didn't the federal government just ban them? Well, we began by listening to a lot of different folks in this space, including survivors, uh, law enforcement, uh, industry leaders and we landed on a policy in the form of the national handgun freeze because we think it is the fastest and most effective way to reverse some very alarming trends which were reported by statistics canada including the uh, ongoing increase uh, to the handgun universe about 55,000 new registrations every single year for the last decade so by launching this uh, policy it's it's part of a broader c21 package which represents the strongest gun reform a legislative uh, package in a generation. But but the question is, is it missing the mark? 
you know between 80 and 85% of the crimes committed with handguns in, in urban areas are done with illegal handguns. The smuggling of handguns across the U.S. border is the big problem. Uh, are you targeting legal gun owners, gun owners who aren't the problem? They're not the criminals. They're not, they've already faced some of the toughest regulations. And in fact, so it looks like you're doing something, but you're really not targeting the illegal flow of guns across the border. Bill C-21 doesn't target law-abiding gun owners. It targets handgun violence. It targets organized crime. We're raising maximum sentences against illegal smugglers. We're giving police new wiretap powers to interdict and to stop gun crime from occurring in the first place. And we're investing in more resources for CBSA and RCMP so that they've got the technology. When you combine that with the cooperation that we have with the United States by reinvigorating the cross-border crime forum, we're going to be tackling incoming illegal firearms at the border. Last year, we seized a record number. We need to do more, and Bill C-21 right. will help us do that. But it's a freeze on legal guns. Like you're saying, you can't, you can't buy new, more handguns. There's legal gun owners who say, look, we already have some of the most onerous safety rules. There's no data that says the legal gun owners are the problem. Leave us alone and go after the illegal guns. What's the response to that? Because I've spoken to a lot of these gun owners. They feel like they're being unfairly targeted and, frankly, criminalized. Look, and I have uh, enormous respect for law-abiding gun owners and have engaged with them and have visited some of my uh, opposition colleagues' writings to, to talk with them. But the fact of the matter remains that Statistics Canada reports that gun violence is on the rise. Handgun violence specifically is on the rise. Um, Gender-based and domestic violence in connection with guns is on the rise. And another thing that Bill C-21 does is it introduces red flag protocols, which allows anyone to go to a court to say, seize the, uh, the, the gun or suspend the license uh, precisely to address that, but with the additional protection of that person's identity. So there's a lot of good here. Canadians support this legislation, Evan, because we've been listening to them and we'll continue to work with them to pass this law. I'm just trying to figure out the logic. You're the government that decriminalized marijuana because you said, look, uh, people are, you know, by criminalizing it, we're basically boosting the black market. It's illegal. We can't seem to stop it. So we'll make sure it's safe and we'll legalize it and organizing it. Now you're freezing handgun sales. Couldn't that just boost the black market for the weapon? And it's the very opposite logic that you're using to handle the drug issue with marijuana. Now you're doing the very opposite thing with guns. I don't get it. Well, there's a big difference between trying to take people who are addicted and struggle with substance issues out of the criminal court system because it's not an effective way to rehabilitate them and putting them into the public health care system and going after serious hardened criminals who want to traffic and import illegal guns which hurt and terrorize our communities. And what Bill C-21 does is it takes that problem head on by introducing a national handgun freeze, by giving police additional powers and resources, and by addressing uh, the very serious concerns that we have know, but, between but, but, sir, uh, domestic know, but, violence but I, and I, gun crime. Minister, just respectfully, there are still tough drug laws, but, but the government controls recreational use of marijuana because the government clearly thinks there's a safe way and a recreational way to use it. Why doesn't that apply to handguns as well? Make it, you know, organize that and then go after the, heart, the, the drug crimes. The, just like the drug dealers you're still going after, go after the people who are getting illegal guns. But let the recreational safe users have their say like you're doing with pot. We do respect that the vast majority of gun uh, owners are, are ones that follow the law, but we're adjusting and making changes to the law because there have been ongoing increases to gun violence. And at the end of the day, uh, we have to do better. And we're going to continue working with law enforcement. We're going to continue working uh, with mayors. I was just in Saskatchewan uh, where we heard broad support 
uh, not only from big city mayors, but from some rural mayors as well, who think that this bill represents a step in the right direction. That's why I'm calling on all parliamentarians to read this bill, to debate this bill, and to pass this bill okay. as quickly as possible. Minister, you're saying something really I want people to listen to. You're saying it's a step in the right direction. Is this a step towards an outright national ban? Is that what this is? This is acceptable. We'll do the freeze, but as you said, it's a step, and we're going to go further. Is that coming? Well, look, uh, as I've always said, uh, we have to leave all options on the table. But I also want to make something else clear. Bill C-21, while it is a significant stride and the most ambitious in a generation by itself, will not eradicate gun violence. Um, we have to invest in our police. We have to make sure that we are protecting our borders. We have to introduce smart gun policy. And we also have, right. have to make sure that we are addressing gun crime at its root right. cause, which is why our Building Safer Communities Fund is going to do just that, taking right. a look at access to affordable housing and creating safer and inclusive spaces and access to other health care supports. We've got to be doing all of these things as part of a comprehensive strategy. It's not about picking one. It's about doing all of them at the same time. Your government has already banned 1,500 assault-style weapons back in 2020. You're planning to do more, by the way, but you have yet to introduce the buyback program. When will Canadians finally see that? And what's taken so long to bring in that program? Well, look, from my point of view, the, the program can't start fast enough. We uh, built, uh, we put in place, sorry, the national ban on AR-15 and assault-style rifles uh, two years ago. That banned 1,500 models. We're now up to 1,800 models, which is a good thing because these guns have no place in our communities. And we are going to be imminently launching the industry co uh, consultation to come up with a compensation scheme. Yeah. It's a hard, complex thing to do, Evan. This is the first program of its kind in Canada, but we are determined to begin the process of buying back AR-15 and assault-style rifles by the end of this year. Okay, got to leave it there this morning. A Public Safety Minister Marco Mendicino. Appreciate your time. Thanks, Evan. Okay, when we come back, Ford's Yes Express roars to victory. How did Doug Ford transform himself and his party and suddenly become the most powerful conservative, not only in Ontario, but maybe in Canada? What's next for the now leaderless NDP and liberals in that province? And why was voter turnout at such historic lows? We'll dig into the big takeaways from the Ontario election next. Stay right here with Question Period. It's no longer about being part of the blue, the red, the orange or green team. It's about recognizing that there's so much that unites us. This is my proudest achievement as a leader of this party, building a new coalition, expanding our base, creating a more inclusive party where everyone matters. Get it done. That was Doug Ford's mantra in the Ontario election, and he over-delivered leading his progressive conservatives to a massive 83-seat majority government, gaining more seats in the legislature than he did in 2018 and literally knocking out his two main opponents, NDP leader Andrea Horvath and Liberal leader Stephen Del Duca. They both resigned on election night. It's time for me to pass the torch, to pass the baton, to hand off the leadership of the NDP. And you know what? It makes me sad, but it makes me happy because our team is so strong right now. I have no doubt that the women and men that Ontario Liberals have elected to the legislature will do their part, in fact will do more than their part, to help grow a new and energetic progressive movement here in Ontario. It will, however, be a movement that will be led by a new leader. 
The NDP still remained the official opposition, though severely diminished, but it was a total wipeout for the Liberals. With a paltry eight seats, they failed to regain official party status, which they lost back in 18. So what went right for the PCs and what went wrong for the opposition? After eight private sector unions endorsed the Ford Conservatives, is there a permanent realignment in the voting blocks in Canada's biggest province? Let's find out. Joining me now, CTV political commentator, former NDP leader Tom Mulcair, Scott Reed, CTV political analyst and former director of communications to Prime Minister Paul Martin and conservative strategist, uh, used to work with uh, Aaron O'Toole when he was a leader, Melanie Parody. Okay, wow. Ontario election. What does it mean not only in Ontario, but what does it mean for the country? Mel, your top line, what was the story of that election and what does it tell us? What's the big takeaway? So I think that the big success of this election for Doug Ford has been his work to rebuild alongside Monty McNaughton, his work to rebuild the relationships that conservatives have, have long um, allowed to fall by the wayside with unions and with laborers in particular, with the working class. So this is a resurgence of uh, conservatives standing up for blue collar workers and it, they showed up to vote for him. Okay, Scott, uh, your big takeaway, uh, you know, what does it tell us and what's the big takeaway? Well, I, I sort of somewhat in agreement. I think the story of the campaign is indisputably Doug Ford. I mean, they ran a perfect campaign, but more importantly, beginning about a year ago, he and his team recognized that coming out of COVID, he had an opportunity to fundamentally redefine his relationship with Ontario voters, and he did. He became Uncle Doug. He became the optimistic populist, not the negative grievance populist. And he built his campaign around being premier, yes, growth, we're gonna build, and he brought people in. He stole every other party's thunder. He took votes from the NDP in the labor movement. He took votes from liberals all across the 905 and elsewhere. And he built an even bigger majority than he had in a sweep election. There's no way around it. Doug Ford is the story of this campaign, and he just looms over top of Ontario like a colossus. Okay, so Tom, I'd love your, your take. Uh, what you think the story is? Uh, almost historically low voter turnout. Well, uh, you know, Andrew Horvath and Del Duca stepping down. Lots happened here with this big Ford victory. What's your takeaway? Well, you're right. I mean, that low voter turnout particularly hurt the NDP. Already, the 18 to 30-year-olds who tend to be very strongly NDP tend to vote less, and that obviously hurt Andrea Horvath. But her result, becoming the official opposition for the second time in a row by historical standards, that's a great result for the NDP in Ontario. But Andrea has decided nonetheless to step down. She had already given some hint that that's the way she'd be going. And it's going to be a real Donnybrook to see who's able to succeed her in Ontario. Because, of course, they have, for the reasons that were just given both by Melanie and Scott, the NDP saw a lot of their working class vote drift away to the Conservatives. This is not new. We know about orange-blue switchers. They skip right over the Liberal Party. But it's something that hurt them in particular in the North. When you see someone like Gilles Bisson, a 30-year MPP, losing his Timmins riding, you can imagine that somebody like Charlie Angus is very worried when he's looking at a result like that this morning. Well, you're right about that. Uh the, the word that Doug Ford used, Mel, was a new coalition. And the question is, is it a permanent new coalition and, and a permanent new realignment? Uh, and, and what you tweeted out something I thought on election night really interesting. You said Doug Ford is now the new leader of the conservative movement in Canada. What do you mean by that? Yeah, I mean, he, Doug Ford won in places where conservatives have not been competitive in generations. He, he is, whether people like it or not, the most successful conservative politician in the country right now. 
and he may not hold on to the title of being the leader of the conservative movement past this leadership race, perhaps, but that's he's he's the leader right now. He's the most successful conservative politician that we have. He's won two majorities in Ontario, which is not and what message not at all does that to send Mel to conservatives on the federal scene? So I think that it needs to send a message at one, this the expanding the voter coalition to include labor to include the working class is certainly an essential thing that we need to be looking at doing across the country, first and foremost. Um, but second, his style, where he's he's not an ideologue, he, he cares more about like everyday people as opposed to proving his conservative bona fides on a daily basis. I think that is is something that we need to take away from this as well, that it's we need to drop a lot of the partisanship, a lot of the opposing for the sake of opposing things and instead be solutions oriented, which is something that Doug Ford's always been really good at. All right, uh, put on your asbestos uh, suit there, Scott Reed, and sift through the hot ashes for the Liberals and the NDP. What, 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 what do you find? What do they need to do? Well, I, I agree with Tom. I think, frankly, if you look at the arc of this campaign, the result for the NDP is actually not that bad. I mean, they held on to official opposition. They defended in the 416. They now have a geographic base of seats that looked like they were under attack from the Liberals mid-campaign, even late campaign. So, you know, they've got something to build on and build from. The Liberals, obviously, enormously disappointing result, not what they expected, performed beneath what polls told us they were going to achieve, both in terms of popular vote and in terms of seats. It wasn't really a darn bit different than the 2018 outcome. So what does the Liberal Party need to do? I think it comes down to three words, leadership, leadership, leadership. Del Duca is gone. He did not connect with Ontario voters. They must find a leader who has the capacity to excite voters, to connect with voters, to say, listen, here's the alternative to the government and here's why you got to follow our band and our music. Well, the, the official party status lost, that's financially uh, really difficult to create a diamond out of that. Uh, Tom, you're starting to get in the shade in the sun there, so I'm going to ask you to throw some shade uh, and what, what this means here. Throw some shade, yep. if you will, on the future of, of the progressive movement in Ontario when Doug Ford uh, is the, the colossus astride that province right now. Well, I think that you're spot on with that analysis of Doug Ford's role because I don't think we're witnessing a sea change in Ontario politics that will carry on necessarily beyond Doug Ford. If the Conservatives in the future go back to someone who's more like a, a Bay Street banking type uh, than, than a Doug Ford, they won't be able to hold on to those workers. I've been at this game for a long time. The Conservative campaign was one of the best I've ever seen. Frustrating as a, as a commentator and somebody who's observing these things because you would have loved to see him out there more. But they knew what they were doing. I also think that Andrea Horvath knew what she was doing. I used to criticize her at the beginning and say, hey, she's running for opposition leader. But she clearly knew that she had no chance to win. And she said, look, you need somebody to stand up strong to Ford who's going to win, and the NDP is that party. So they, they did lose a number of seats, but they've still got a very strong group. But you're right, they have to be super careful in the immediate suburbs around Toronto because that's where they paid a heavy price. What is the message for Justin Trudeau, Scott? Oh, I think the message for Justin Trudeau is that he's going to get uh, a uh, populist opponent in the next election. I don't think it's going to be Doug Ford. I think it's going to be Pierre Polyev, and it's a contrast to Doug Ford. You know, we've been talking about it. The message is that was Ontario, man. The federal politics, it's going to be populism of grievance politics, not populism of inclusion politics. And so I think, you know, Justin Trudeau, what's the lesson? I think he's going to want to draw those Doug Ford voters. How does Justin Trudeau win again and beat Pierre Polyev? He wins the seat to 905 that Doug Ford won last night. That's going to be the game for him. All right. And fascinating election. Uh, Tom Mulcair, Scott Reed, Melanie Parody, great to have the three of you on the program. 
All right, coming up, a Canadian first. How will BC's plan to decriminalize small amounts of illicit drugs help the growing opioid crisis? And should there be a national strategy to do the same thing? BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Sheila Malcolmson, joins us next on that. Stay right here with Question Period. Decriminalizing possession of small amounts of fentanyl, cocaine, methamphetamines. Yes, that's right. It is a Canadian first. British Columbia has been given the exemption from the federal government to tackle the opioid crisis in a new and to many a very controversial way. As of the end of January next year, Canadians in BC aged 18 and older will not be charged if they possess a combined 2.5 grams of illicit drugs. Just remember, selling and trafficking of those drugs is still illegal. But six years ago, the province declared a public health emergency due to the significant rise in opioid-related overdose deaths. Advocates say the dramatic policy shift will help treat addiction as a health issue rather than as a criminal one. Meantime, the NDP leader, Jagmeet Singh, is saying, you know what, we should make this a national approach to drug decriminalization. Check it out. What does that say about the rest of Canada? What does that say to the thousands of families who bury their children because they were lost to a toxic supply or to an overdose situation? What does it say to the rest of Canadians that their lives don't matter? It's shameful, frankly, to not take a national approach to a national crisis. So should the federal government decriminalize possession of certain drugs across the entire country? And what progress do BC health officials hope to see from all this? Let's find out. Joining me now is British Columbia's Minister of Mental Health and Addictions, Sheila Malcolmson. Uh, Minister, good to have you on the program. I know BC had called for this for a long time. They wanted the exemption um, from the Controlled Substances Act. You got it for three years. What, why was this so important? We've been throwing everything at the overdose crisis since it was declared a public health emergency six years ago, building up new treatment beds. We went from one supervised consumption site when we formed government to over 40 now. A lot of them are inhalation sites because people use, consume drugs in different ways. We're the first province to offer prescribed safe supply. We've given nurses the ability to prescribe medication-assisted treatment and still toxicity of the illicit street supply has outpaced our ability to add new services and, and interrupt that connection to illicit drugs. Yeah, BC saw 2,224 suspected toxic illicit drug overdose deaths in 2021, more than 9,400 since 2016. These are you know, tragic numbers. I guess the question is, and I know you have the support of what, the Canadian Association of Chiefs of Police, the BC Association of Police, a lot of people support it. But there's a lot of people that say this is counterintuitive, that, that you know, decriminalizing fentanyl, decriminalizing cocaine, these small amounts of it, is the wrong way to go. Um, what do you say to the folks that say this is literally the, the wrong path? So really important to, to clarify, we're decriminalizing the people who use drugs. We're not legalizing or decriminalizing the drugs themselves. They remain illegal. Trafficking remains illegal. Even below the 2.5 gram limit, if there's evidence of trafficking, it's trafficking and charges apply. But we hear, I mean, the, the people that the coroner tells us are dying of overdose. Are, the majority are dying alone in their own homes with their family and friends having no idea that they were struggling with addiction. And these are people that never reached out for 
a treatment bed or medication assisted treatment. So, and, and, and even though police have by and large not lately been charging people for right. small personal possession, there is still a major stigma about it. Um, you might lose your job, you might lose your ability to travel. Um, and if you were thinking of bringing your uh, illicit drugs into a testing center to find out about their toxicity, you're not protected from criminal charges. Right. So all kinds of ways that that stigma is has so, driven. So, so you're saying, but so police will not. Why is it important for a police if they if they see someone with 2.5 grams of fentanyl, they're they're gonna they won't take the drugs from them anymore. Why is that so important? What would happen in the past if they did take the drugs, if they seized them? This is what we heard from public health and from people who use drugs, who are part of our core planning table, who built our application, is that when people who are medically dependent on illicit drug supply have that taken away from them, and it's after hours and the medical clinic is closed, they are going to make themselves more vulnerable again and do desperate things, petty crime, um, more dangerous sex work. Uh, so this is a really important part of the framework um, and, and a big departure, you're right. Well, Alberta Premier Jason Kenney says as a neighboring province, the government of Alberta is alarmed by this announcement to decriminalize. We'll be monitoring the situation closely. I want to state in the strongest possible terms the government of Canada and the government of British Columbia that Alberta will exhaust all options should their actions cause damage to Albertans. What is your response to Premier Kenney? Well, Premier Kenny's uh, record on responding to the overdose crisis and standing up healthcare supports is is pretty clear um, and a marked contrast to what British Columbia is doing. Um, but this is an exemption that we sought for British Columbia, and I can't imagine how this would um, impact uh, what's happened to our neighboring. Well, Jay, I mean, Jagmeet Singh is now saying um, they should nationalize this. There could, should be a national decriminalization program. Uh, does BC agree with that? In summer 2020, Premier Horgan wrote to the Prime Minister saying, this is advice I'm getting for here at home, and I think that you, Prime Minister, should uh, look at a national decriminalization framework. It would be better for us to, to look at this in coordination. That didn't happen, um, and so we made our own application last November. Minister, how are, will Canadians and people in British Columbia, how will they know if this is working? You've got three years here. Is there a number that you say we expect the overdose deaths to fall by X number? Uh, or is this in conjunction with stopping the toxic supply? In other words, how do we know if this is actually a, a good solution or not? The work that's easier for us to measure is how many more addiction treatment beds we're able to stand up, how quickly we're able to chip away at the waiting list for them. How many more people we are able to connect with medication-assisted treatment, prescribe safe supply? Um, how many more visits we have to supervise consumption sites and testing centers? That's all much more measurable. Decriminalization of people who use drugs and combating that stigma is much more of a, a it's a real sea change in thinking. Um, it's a change in the way that we're balancing public health and 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 the more traditional justice. I understand that, but what about cracking down on the, the, the dealers, cracking down on those people that are supplying basically the poison? Yeah, very fair. And that's work that my colleague, uh, Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth is seized with. That's work that's happening all the time. We're trying to make those seizures as high profile as we can so that people know that we're tackling that side on the input. 
Um, and then also doing the work where, again, on, in my area of responsibility as minister, right. where people are already dependent, um, connecting them with prescribed safe supply as a way to separate them from the illicit street supply. Well, BC gets the exemption. We hear other jurisdictions across this country are applying for the exemption. We'll find out if that happens. But BC's Minister of Mental Health and Addiction, Sheila Malcolmson, after you've and your, your government has long called for this. You got that exemption. So here we go as of January. Thank you. Thanks, Anna. Still to come, the big blue wave in Ontario. What led to Doug Ford's crushing majority re-election in Ontario? How did it happen? We pull back the curtain with Ford's campaign manager, Corey Tonight, and what it means federally. Stay right here with Question Period. So the Doug Ford 2022 election sequel turned out to be even more successful than the 2018 original. His progressive conservative party landed another majority with the win called in less than half an hour. And the night ending with the resignation of his two rivals, NDP leader Andrea Horvath after four shots resigns and so does liberal leader Stephen Del Duca after one shot. Now the NDP still remain the diminished official oppositions and but Mr. Del Duca not only didn't win his seat, he didn't win back official party status. So where did the liberals go from here? Where did the NDP go from here? And what went right for Doug Ford? And what does all this say about what it means to be a conservative and winning in Canada. The Scrum is here to answer all that. Joyce Napier, the CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief, is here. Stephanie Levitz is a political reporter with the Toronto Star. And our special guest is the guy that probably hasn't slept since the campaign, Doug Ford's campaign manager, Corey Tonight. Good to see everyone here. Corey, uh, you've been through losing elections, winning elections. This is a big, uh, big win. Uh, pull back the curtain. How did Doug Ford, two years ago, everyone thought this guy's in serious trouble. Two years later, it looked inevitable. What went, what was the plan to get this right? Well, really, really it centers around uh, the premier himself. Like this is very much Doug Ford's victory. Uh, and I say that for, for a number of reasons, you know, it, it, these, these races often come down to the choice that the voters make around leadership and, uh, and, and looking at Doug Ford and the other uh, uh, options available, uh, he clearly won, uh, won that debate, won that discussion. Uh, you know, I think he ran a, a very disciplined campaign with a very clear message for voters and uh, delivered it consistently day after day. What was the ballot box question? Like, what did this election turn on? Well, like all of these things, I think it ultimately comes down, who do you want to have in charge for, for the coming four years? Uh, you know, we had a five-point plan very much centered on building and the economy, uh, and plan for growth for the province. Uh, which I think is really was fitting uh, where the public is at here in the province of Ontario right now. So I, I think it's all of that. And then tied in there is, I think, also uh, a big issue around housing uh, and affordability generally, uh, which, uh, which I, I think uh, our plan was, was the most credible in the, in, the, in the eyes of enough voters to, to win a big majority. So very happy about that. Steph, Steph what, what are you, what's your big takeaway here um, from the Ford win and how that worked and what happened to the Liberals and the NDP? So a big takeaway is that no one, uh, Doug Ford certainly was not held accountable for the first two years of his mandate, nor some of the mistakes he made um, about the pandemic management. This was not a referendum election on the pandemic. And that's fascinating if you think about the number of deaths in Ontario, the number of businesses destroyed in Ontario. And what Doug Ford managed to do was give everybody 
a look forward. He was all about moving forward. And I think as many people want to put the pandemic in their rearview mirror, this idea to borrow his slogan, you know, of getting it done, of just moving on, that resonated and people were much more willing to look forward than look back. And that leads to some questions, I think, you know, on the federal level about pandemic accountability. But for the Liberals and New Democrats in Ontario, it also raises the question of the future of the Liberals and New Democrats in Ontario. They split the vote in half, if you look at it, the popular vote. And so what does that mean? I mean, what it means is, is there a future for one of them to jump ahead of the other? Or is this a time to wonder why are there two parties on the left anymore? And what does the future look like for left wing and more progressive politics in Ontario? Joyce, what's your big takeaway? Well, I think it's the victory of pragmatic uh, politics. Uh, this man is a pragmatist. He's not an ideologue. He can make nice with opponents, read the federal government. Uh, he can, you know, play well with others. And you know what? He, he's he's the, the guy you'd go for a beer with, but he also showed compassion when he made mistakes. And I agree with Stephanie. He made mistakes during uh, the pandemic, but which politician hasn't made mistakes during this pandemic? He actually apologized. He went to the mic and he said, okay, yeah, I messed up. So, you know, he... He the the get it done is you, you can't get more pragmatic than that. And, you know, I think people believed it. Uh, it look, it's the lowest turnout in 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 Ontario history. And uh, and yet he managed to get his vote out. It, it, it people did not want change. They did not. Ontarians did not go to the poll because they wanted change. 43% turnout, 58% in uh, 2018. Corey, uh, let me go back to you. In his victory speech, uh, Doug Ford said he's got a new coalition. There's a real realignment. Uh, it was eight or nine private sector unions uh, supported Doug Ford. Not the public sector, but the private sector unions. That's fundamental, representing what, about almost 500,000 workers. Uh, what is this new coalition he's talking about, and why should how does this matter for federal conservatives who are engaged in their own leadership race right now yeah well i'll, I'll take take those on separately uh, first i think one of the big stories uh around that uh changed uh, reimagined conservative coalition here in ontario uh is uh is about private sector union support uh, the other part of his coalition that's very different is is really unique to him as an individual the reputation and brand and, and support base that the Ford families had in parts of Toronto really went with them, which is why we won seats like uh, York Southwestern. Uh, that's very much uh, a seat that uh, municipally voted overwhelmingly uh, for the Fords uh, in Toronto mayoral races. And, uh, and with Michael Ford running there, uh, voted for us for the first time in like 60 years. So uh, it, it's those two things. Uh, what does it mean for the federal conservatives? Well, you know, I think it's just the same thing that's always the case. It's very hard to form a national government without significant support in the province of Ontario. And today, you know, this has been the struggle since uh, since Stephen Harper is to, to find uh, a message that appeals uh, broadly enough to do that. If you're involved in the conservative leadership campaign uh, this weekend, they're rolling out their big numbers, 150,000 plus. Uh, this is going to be the big membership drive. What's the message they learned from Project Ontario, which, as Corey said, has been the big prize all along? 
Well, what's interesting is that to what extent are voters going with the progressive conservative party in Ontario, or to what extent are they aligning behind Doug Ford? I mean, Corey said off the top, right, this was Doug Ford's victory. This is about people showing support for Doug Ford. In some ways, if you look at, for example, the budget that Doug Ford unveiled right before the election, he was offering to spend more than the Liberals, you know? So it's a question is, what does it mean to be a conservative today, and what does that mean in Ontario? Federal conservatives will say, look, Aaron O'Toole tried to moderate. Aaron O'Toole tried to be the more sort of progressive conservative akin perhaps more to Doug Ford. It didn't work for him. We need to, we can only win power if we're less like the Liberals, not more like the Liberals. But if you're going to look at what happened in Ontario, perhaps that is not actually the case. Perhaps you do need to find a way to speak to voters who would obviously vote liberal because the same folks who are supporting Doug Ford in Ontario are voting liberal federally or they're voting new Democrat federally. You need those same voters. All right. I got to leave it there. Uh, Corey tonight, congratulations. Thanks for joining us. Also, Steph Levitz, thanks for joining us. Joyce is going to stick around because when we come back, fighting guns. Will a national freeze on handguns really help quash gun crimes in this country? Or is it just political theater? Will illegal guns still flow across the border? The conservative public safety critic Raquel Dancho joins us scrum to weigh in. Stay right here with Question Period. Freezing firearm sales. The Liberal government has introduced a new bill, as we talked about earlier in the show, in hopes of cracking down on handguns in Canada. This after several, of course, recent tragic mass shootings in the United States, in Buffalo, in three weeks ago, in Uvalde, Texas, two weeks ago, that horrible one, and now, of course, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, just a few days ago. These are reinvigorating calls south of the border for stricter gun laws, but critics say the Liberals' bill, the freeze, not the ban on handguns, is targeting the wrong issue. Critics say the Liberal plan won't actually stop dangerous criminals. It will negatively impact law-abiding gun owners while illegal guns cross the border anyway. So does the proposed bill have any real effect on this? How is it playing out politically? The Scrum is here to answer that. Joyce Napier, the CTV Ottawa Bureau Chief, is back. So is Bob Fife, our, the uh, Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Globe and Mail. And our special guest this round is the Conservative public safety critic Raquel Dancho. Good to see everyone. Uh, Raquel Dancho, I'll start with you. And we spoke to Minister Mendocino earlier in the program. Not a full ban on gun, uh, handguns, but a freeze on their sale, a cracking down on other aspects as well. Why did you call this bill ineffective? What did you hope to see? We hope to see more investment made at the border and gangs unit uh, in our major cities. As we know, that's where the handgun problem is coming from. Over 85%, that's eight to nine out of every 10 guns used in Toronto uh, gang, uh, gun violence is smuggled in from the United States. So announcing something that targets uh, legal gun owners, which is a relatively small uh, number in Canada, is the wrong approach. It's not going after the problem. The problem is the gang gang violence and drug trafficking, which is tightly related to it, in Toronto. So if they wanted to make a meaningful announcement, Evan, the announcement should have been about going after those areas. But, okay, they have the support of mayors, Toronto, Vancouver, uh, Montreal, big city mayors want this, even though it's not a, a ban, it's a freeze. They also have red flag laws. So if you, you know, if someone's making statements, their guns can be removed. They also have domestic violence issues that if someone's stalking someone, they have their government. Do you support any aspects of that? And what would you say to a mayor who says, we want this anyway? 
Well, certainly red flag laws already exist. We welcome uh, strengthening of those, but those powers already exist uh, with police. I would also point out that the Liberals, at the same time that they're targeting uh, legal gun owners or legal firearm owners, they are also reducing and eliminating mandatory prison time for criminals who commit dangerous crimes with guns, and that's with Bill C-5. So their approach really doesn't make a lot of sense. On one hand, they're going after legal gun owners who aren't part of the gun problem in Toronto, and on the other hand, they're letting criminals in Toronto committing crimes with guns off the hook with Bill C-5, Evan. Uh, Joyce, what do you make of the, 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 hand, the headlines, the handgun freeze, there's lots of other elements, effective or theater? Uh, I think, uh, sadly, I think it's more theater. Is it, is it an improvement? Yes, it's a small improvement, but a freeze is not a ban. So you got to decide. It's like being a little bit pregnant. You either are or you're not. So why do people need handguns? I'm sorry, but I think we have to ask ourselves that fundamental question. I lived and worked in the States for 12 years. Every time there was a shooting, gun sales went up. I don't think Canada is very different. People seek out the gun because they think it's going to protect them. Why are we not having a conversation about that? Why do we need handguns? We know what they're for. If it is sports shooting, leave them at the club. And if it's not sports shooting, ask ourselves the question, the fundamental question as a society, do we need handguns and what are they for? I just want to say, Raquel Dancho, I know you mentioned Bill C-5, getting rid of mandatory minimums for certain possession and certain crimes. There are still mandatory minimums for serious firearms offenses. So they haven't, I just want to make sure, they're not, it's not like mandatory minimums don't exist for a firearms offense, but some of them, uh, now for the smaller ones, they don't. But Bob Five, is this, po is this politics or is this effective? Well, um, a lot of it is politics. The Liberals love to be able to wedge the Conservatives, which have been much more supportive of guns than any of the other political parties. For sure they're doing that. Uh, Raquel makes a very good point, however, that most of the gun violence uh, involving handguns in this country are involve uh, guns smuggled in from the United States. Often it's the case of drugs going south, uh, illegal guns coming north. Uh, the other uh, violence that associated with handguns in this country are, involves stolen guns from uh, Canadians who own handguns. Yeah. At the same time, uh, I'm with Joyce on this. Um, why do we need handguns in this country? We have 1.1 million handguns. Apparently, we, we, uh, Canadians buy about 55,000 handguns annually every year. We're the largest, aside from the United States, uh, Canada is, the, is one of the countries with the highest handgun ownership. And, you know, we ha it's legal to go, obviously, to hunt, but you don't go hunting with a handgun. And, and I'm, I don't understand why the, the Liberals um, uh, just simply do not ban it. The freeze, is, I think, is an important first step, but go ahead and, and ban it, because why do we need handguns? Well, and they say they won't ban it. Raquel, you, Dancher, you can answer that. Uh, the Liberals have said, look, we're not going to ban sports shooting, but they have said municipalities and provinces will support you if you ban it, but they've just gone sort of halfway with the freeze. Go ahead. I think it's important to point out that those who own handguns are the most vetted people in Canada. That is very important. They are vetted every single day by the RCMP. They are the most background-checked individuals. It is extremely difficult to get a handgun license in this country, as it should be. Conservatives strongly support very strict 
gun laws in Canada. That should remain. But the point of why would anyone need to own one, aside from uh, what we just discussed, we do have uh, a sports shooting community that is represented at an Olympic level in Canada. And that goes back to our cultural history going back over a century. So to wipe out that entire sports shooting community in one fell swoop with this bill, I think begets a larger but conversation they have, I'm about I'm sorry, this. nobody is suggesting to wipe out sports shooting. What we're well, saying what is that no, 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 you can, you can, you yes, can, so why does. don't you store them at the club? You know, it, 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 it's, it, this conversation has been going on for decades, right? And we're still having gun violence. So, you know, either right, you and take, gun violence is caused by those who legally of own course, yes, uh, that, handguns. It's uh, caused absolutely. by gangs and gun smuggling. We've just all agreed yes, on that, actually. But if, as, a, as then, as a society, we decide to ban them, then the message is more clear than a freeze. Oh, we didn't freeze it now. Uh, freeze is a half measure. This is not a half measure issue. This is an issue where we decide it's either or. And, and that's it. And it's not complicated. And why are we the societies in North America that have the most guns? What is this obsession that we have with, with having weapons? I, I don't understand. And it's not necessary. It's antiquated. And, uh, and, and we should get over it. Okay, Bob, I'm going to just leave it with you on the politics of this. So, there, look, on one side they say this is missing the point. As you rightly said, you know, illegal guns are causing most of the crime. Nonetheless, this is sort of this half step, this freeze. And, but there's also the banning of, uh, you know, 1,500 different kind of assault weapons and more to come on that. Just on the politics of this, how is this playing out? Well, look, the Liberals uh, are going after the urban vote. Uh, the rural vote uh, still largely conservative, and so you have uh, Raquel uh, uh, speaking up for people in rural communities who, uh, you know, feel that they, they are law-abiding, they take care of their guns, and they feel that they're being discriminated against. But the votes are in, rural, in urban areas, and people in urban areas don't want to have guns. And so Liberals are wisely wedging the Conservatives on this issue, and it's one they're going to win on, uh, largely because that's in the urban areas, people simply don't want people to have handguns, as, you, have you, as the mayors of Montreal, Vancouver, and uh, Toronto have articulated. All right, uh, I got to leave it there. This issue, look, it's not going anywhere, but um, the question is, what will the results be? And we'll find out. Uh, over time to see how effective all this is. Raquel Dancho, Joyce Napier, Bob Fife. Uh, great to have the three of you on the program. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, before we go, we want to leave you with some of the sights and sounds of the Queen's Platinum Jubilee celebrating her historic 70-year reign. The Queen's grace, her steadfast dignity and elegance have always hovered well above the tawdry fray of celebrity and gossip and have been the animated forces behind the resilience of and the fidelity to the monarchy. Queen Elizabeth has, as they say, stayed the course. And even as her health prevented her from presiding over all the traditions and celebrations, her presence was, and always will be, deeply felt by all. To her good health. That is Question Period for this week. I'll see you back on Power Play on CTV News Channel at 5 p.m. Eastern. Hug your loved ones, that's a privilege. And we'll be back here in seven short days.